Welcome to the Build Better Software Podcast, the podcast for software leaders who want to enable their teams to build better software. I'm your host, George Stocker. And today I am joined by guest Laura Hogan to talk about resilient management. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. I, I'm really excited to have you. Um, now, for folks that uh, who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, these days I coach managers and leaders, uh, fortunately, all over the world. Um, before I was doing this, I worked as the VP of engineering at Kickstarter. And before that, I was an engineering director at Etsy. And before that, many other small <laughs> startups in the tech space. I started out as a self-taught front-end developer and then figured out that management was definitely the place for me. Yeah. So you've worked at large companies, you've worked at startups, uh, and they're, they're, those are typically differently paced. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I want to go into that deeper, yeah. but after you, after you did that, uh, you've now started your own company. Yeah. It's called Wherewithal. So I realized I, I had read this study eons ago now about firefighters and how they develop expertise it turns out you know it was it was there's so many studies by expertise but in this study it was trying to figure out okay comparing firefighters in urban areas to firefighters in rural areas which are the deeper experts just kind of controlling for number of fires and years experience and the study showed that firefighters in this case in urban areas were were deeper experts because of the diversity of fires so uh, different building sizes, different materials, different, you know, just like different kinds of population densities. So it's, it was this diversity of experience that kind of led to expertise building. And I realized I really wanted to get some more expertise at lots of different kinds of companies. And so now that I run my own business, again, supporting managers and leaders of all kinds, different levels, but also different kinds of organizations, ancient organizations, organizations with lots of hierarchy, organizations with no hierarchy, distributed organizations, co-located, you know, it's just the, the, Diversity of organizations I get to support right now is is pretty cool. I'm definitely learning a lot very rapidly, and that's been lovely. Okay. And what sort of offerings do you have to help out leaders? So I kind of split my time between one-on-one coaching and group coaching and training. So I either go into companies and provide workshops, or I offer like uh, <laughs> ticketed workshops, which you have actually attended one of my that's in-person right. workshops at the time. Now it's of course all remote, um, but it's, it's been amazing to be able to go in and support all of these different kinds of leaders, both hands-on application, skill-based training for managers. Cause I don't know about you, but I didn't get any training when I became a manager. No, the only reason I ever had any managerial training was through the army, which is a bit unlike uh, <laughs> everything else Pretty in the world. Pretty different. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. They, but they're a 200 year organization and they do, they have a, an entire, they have books upon books and manuals about leadership and about uh, running teams. And there's a lot that you know, we could learn from it, but it is a completely Absolutely. different space. So many fields have actually developed management training curriculum. Tech, I mean, classic engineers, like we get to, we're like, oh, we're going to figure this out for ourselves. Like we know we can reinvent Ooh, the yeah. wheel. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, precisely. It's been fascinating though to, to try to support tech leaders specifically because I'm sure you've experienced this. Like people are just so hungry to do right by their teams. And so it's been lovely to bring in not just ma management experience, but also, you know, I've done, done a lot of studying on how to be a good trainer, a good, a good educator, a good facilitator. And that's also a whole new discipline. And so it's been really, it's been really nice to try to bring in these skills to, to tech organizations to try to help people out. You, you run a, at least the workshop I went to, it was a one day workshop, I think. 
might've been mm-hmm. two, uh, at the lead dev conference. Now, if, uh, yeah. people who don't know what the lead dev conference is, it's a conference for, as, the, as it says on the tin lead developers. <laughs> so it talks about subjects that are, uh, useful to tech leads, software managers and the like. And I, I loved it. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. And they're doing it all online right now. So they've got a whole bunch of amazing, they've got like a seven part series starting in, in this fall. Uh, it's all like three hour online events. It's going to be just, they're, they're doing such great work and supporting so many people. I'm going to drop that in the show notes because I think Perfect. everybody needs to hear about that. And I'm actually co-hosting the first one. So the first one, if folks are interested in this, um, is all about how do we support our teammates as they grow? What are the skills that we need to use as, as, as lead devs to help our other teammates grow and develop? So I don't want to spoil the, uh, the subject, but what are <laughs> some skills that we need to help our, <laughs> our teammates grow? So the thing that I've learned in doing this job for a while is that as knowledge workers, we're taught that the, that the best way we can help our teammates is by teaching them pair programming or sharing with someone how we would do a thing that they're working on, mentoring them, providing our perspective and our advice. Um, And a bunch of research shows that those skill sets, like the teaching, the mentoring skill sets, the advising skill sets are really only helpful in getting someone unblocked or helping someone onboard. That's it. If we actually want to help people grow, we need to use this whole other set of skills, which most of us are not equipped to use and we've never been taught that they're important. Like, again, we've been taught that the best thing we can do is give our knowledge to other people, but that's actually not how people grow. So the the three skills I, I really like to focus on, uh, I'm going to like a broken record to you here, is coaching. So helping people connect their own dots, introspect, reflect. Um, this is when someone's like, huh, like, what's important to you about this? What's hard about this? If you could change one thing right now, what would you change? Those kinds of open questions really prompt uh, like light bulb moments in someone, you know, it's, it's so powerful to like connect your own dots and be like, Oh, I know what I'm going to do next. And most of us have that in us already. So coaching is, is one big skill set. Sponsoring is another big skill set. So sponsoring has to do with fighting to get someone to the next level by putting, putting your name on the line for them, your reputation on the line for them, giving them access to visible stretch projects, developmental assignments, putting the name in, their name in the ring for a big leadership opportunity, speaking at a company meeting, telling someone's manager that they're doing a great job. So sponsorship is, is the, is the skill set that's most directly correlated to growth and career trajectory. So again, we never talk about this thing, but there's a huge power in this. And then the last one is feedback, which we already all know about, but most of us are pretty scared of, of doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I focus on that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So the, the common or uh, most common approach I've seen to feedback is what we like to think of as the feedback sandwich, which is oh, they did a good thing. Here's the mm-hmm. bad thing you did. And I'm going to close mm-hmm. with a good thing. And at least personally yeah. for me, I never listened to the the good parts. Once I realize that that, that feedback sandwich is coming, Feedback's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I will feel terrible for this today. I will focus only on the negative because I feel like the good part was, it wasn't a lie, but it wasn't, right. it wasn't genuine because it's set at a moment where they wanted to couch bad feedback. Exactly. It wasn't designed to help you grow. It was designed to help soften the blow. So we're not going to like listen to the good stuff if, if it's not there to help us learn. It's just there to help us hear the bad stuff. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, I think we've all done it. Like, no shame. I get it. This is a normal part of human behavior. But uh, it, it really comes back to the, to the six core needs that humans have at work. There's these six core needs, the acronym for which is BICEPS, that I also love talking about because these core needs are all about what our, our brains need to feel safe and secure. Like our fight or flight response will kick in if any of these six core needs are not met. So part of that feedback, the compliment sandwich is to try to make sure that 
this person's amygdala doesn't come online, our fight or flight response doesn't come online. And in doing so, we actually totally activate that person's amygdala. It's just, it's infuriating and frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So if we weren't doing the feedback sandwich, what, right. what should we do? So the way that I like to frame this is, is kind of like three parts here. Um, it deals a little bit from SBI, situation behavior impact. The first part is observation. So what are just the facts? Again, just talking about just the facts, not your assumptions, not your judgments, that helps keep someone's prefrontal cortex, the rational, logical part of the brain online. Because you're like, yeah, yes, I did speak for 20 minutes in the meeting last week. Or yes, I do care about uh, this project getting off the ground or whatever the facts are about this. It helps. Sometimes they can still sense that feedback is coming and so their amygdala still might come on. But if you start out with assumptions, like I think you're doing this because, or judgments like, man, that email that you sent, it was super, it was too short. Like that's, you know, those are not things that are going to help someone's prefrontal cortex stay online. They're going to activate that fight or flight response. So we want to stay fact-based. That's the first thing, observations, fact-based stuff. And one of the things that you said in the workshop, at least, and that I've kind of stuck with is, you know, think of it like if there's a camera looking at this event and there was, mm -hmm. there's no people interpreting it, but just a camera, recorded sound, recorded video, and this is what it saw, what would it say? Precisely. I do like to caveat every time I say that I have to caveat by being like, please don't record your coworkers just because it feels important to call it out. But exactly, like what could what could a video camera record? Yeah, precisely. And so after yeah. that, what's the next step? It's impact. So one of the weird parts about feedback is that we often describe uh, why we, why we want someone else to change their behavior. Like, what's the impact to me? Like, I care about this because it's ruining my day, or I care about this because it's disrupting our team meeting, or I care about what could be anything. We're so rarely ever prompted to think about why should this feedback recipient care about this? And the thing is, every one of us cares about really different things. Like, if I say to you, like, you should really care about this because this is going to really help, you know, your promotion, but you don't care about getting promoted, you're not going to care about this feedback. So what we've got to start to do is, is stop, is remove our assumptions, remove our own reasons why we care. Instead, take a step back and say, what does this person care about? Maybe you do care about a promotion. Maybe you care about being liked on the team. Maybe you, maybe you care about getting this project done on time. It could be anything. So taking a step back saying, what does this person care about just generally? And then reframing or translating the feedback into that thing that they care about. Usually any behavior is going to have lots of different impacts to choose from. So just pick the one that feels like it's going to resonate the most with this person. It doesn't have to be all about you, the feedback giver. It should be about this feedback recipient and why they would be motivated to change this behavior. So as an example, during your presentation, it feels like you were nervous and stuttered. Yeah, the, yeah. the impact was, I'm not sure people heard the really important idea that you gave. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, and the thing is, uh, it feels like you were nervous is an assumption. Oh, Help me out. Right? Make, make me better. How can we do that better? So like if, if someone stuttered, first of all, does this person have a stutter? That's probably something that they are already thinking about and working on. Like, I'm not sure how this feedback is going to make them better, but let's say they, let's say um, they tripped over their words constantly. So for the, for the duration of the, of the talk, uh, the presentation, they, they tripped over their words. I would say, uh, Hey, I was probably start with impact. Like, Hey, I, I know you care about getting this uh, to land with your audience, whatever the thing is. Like, I know you care about getting practice delivering skills. I would, I would like to start with an impact here. Then I'd be like, one thing I noticed is that at times, like it was 
there were a lot of words that came out at once or um, you started and stopped sentences repeatedly. So like, again, I'm just like, just fact-based as much as I humanly can. And then I would cap it off with a question. So again, we've all been taught to like offer a request, like, therefore, could you please stop tripping over your words? It's like not a thing that's <laughs> going to be helpful to this person. And, and again, usually if you've, if you've gotten the observation, right, it's just fact-based and you've gotten the impact, right? Like that's something that they already care about. At this stage in the game, they're already, they already know what they want to do. They're already motivated to change. So you saying, therefore, could you please speak more slowly or whatever? It's going to short circuit this whole process. It, this should feel like a dialogue, not like a one-way brain dump. Um, so ask an open question. And I don't mean a question that's like, what if you tried blah, because that's still a request. Asking an open question means what are you genuinely curious about with this person? Like I might say, uh, what do you want the audience to know when they're done watching your, your talk? Like, again, like what's the one number one takeaway you want to have? Or um, what's, what's the number one skill that you want to be practicing for this? Because I, I genuinely do want to know, is it, is it word choice? Is it body language? Is it how much you're presenting, you're, you're like speaking at volume? It could be anything. So these kinds of genuinely open questions that start with the word what really help make this feel less like a, like a, like a feedback issue and more like, a, okay, we're going to build this together. We're going to, we're going to help change this behavior together. Oh, now, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I, I'm, um, I'm almost embarrassed because I, I wish I had, I had known about that, you know, when I was started to be a manager a long Same. time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Because, it's infuriating, right? Reflecting back, you're like, oh man. Oh, I'm sorry. Anybody yeah. who, who reported me, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all still have like, wait, like long-term to go. Like we, even, even I still, it's so hard to break out of the old feedback patterns. It's hard to remember this shouldn't be just like a big dump of information. This should feel like a two-way dialogue and you should be framing it in terms of what this person cares about. It's really easy to forget because we're so driven to give us feedback. We're like, I know why I care about this. I bet they care about it too. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here, but it, and it's just a connection I just made at this moment, but this sounds like this could be also good for teams in a retrospective format that are doing something like Scrum. 100%. The questions part in particular. So I think it's totally cool to state facts, like in a retrospective, like here's fact-based, a thing that happened is much better than here's what I'm assuming is happening or here's my judgment about what's happening. So again, keep those, keep those amygdalas offline, keep the prefrontal cortex online. Um, but then questions are really, really powerful. Like, hey, what's our number one shared goal here? Or if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing, what would it be? It could be anything. Any of these open questions can help to prompt that introspection, help someone connect their own dots and figure out together a path forward. Now, you've just finished writing a book, haven't you? Yeah. Resilient Management. Yeah. Tell us about it. Oh, this was like the culmination of so many hours of coaching and training. You know, I, I found that the same topics were coming up consistently in the managers that I was working with at all levels. Like, this is a book, uh, not just for people who are brand new or curious about management, but, but people who've been doing it for a long time, because there's stuff in here that just even senior leaders struggle with. Like, why is, why is no one getting on board with our new OKR process? <laughs> why is this person I try to keep delegating things to not picking up the slack? Like all of these are the topics that we all have in common, like, regardless of level. Um, and there's a lot in here in the book too, about adapting your leadership 
approach when things aren't working? Because I think as managers, we all kind of default to what to what we know or what's worked for us in the past or what we wish we had in a manager. And we don't get a lot of practice using other kinds of leadership styles or approaches. And it's really, I think it's, as leaders, it's so critical for us to know how to use different kinds of styles, leadership styles and approaches, more direct, more empowering, based on the context and what the people around us need and not just what we need. Hmm. Now in the army, they had, they listed three. And again, being in the army, they, they drill these things into you. So <laughs> years later, I can still mention what they had three styles of leadership. There was directing, uh, effectively a dictator. Uh, there was delegation. Uh, where you uh -huh. have other people do it. You say, hey, go do X, they do X. And then there's participatory, uh -huh. uh, where you work with the team to you know make things happen. Now, that's definitely uh, different words, maybe for the same thing, maybe for different things that you talk about in resilient management. So let's talk about the arc of, of leadership that you bring up in your book. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Because when you said delegating, I was trying to piece together, like, how is that, how is that distinctive from the other two styles? Because you could delegate in a directive way, or you could delegate in a participatory way. That's true. That's true. I don't think that they, uh, I don't think that they ever uh, made that distinction, at least what I was in, <laughs> uh, but you're right. It's interesting. Yeah. So I kind of think about it as like a spectrum between two endpoints, which actually sounds, it mirrors that a little bit. One is directive, like being really directive, um, you know, being really firm, blunt, clear, uh, just setting the path forward empowerment is the other end that I usually think about. And it sounds like that's probably closer to the participatory style that you mentioned, like coaching style and sponsoring style are totally on the empowerment end of the spectrum, like helping someone connect their own dots, um, bringing people along for the ride, not just telling them what to do. And strong leaders, I think, kind of bounce around the spectrum based on what the situation calls for. So like, we all have a default. Mine by default is empowering. Like, I'm just like, if I could coach all day, I would. But there's failure modes to either end. Like there will absolutely be circumstances in which the, our default isn't useful. Like mm. if I had, if I was onboarding someone new to my team and they had no idea what to do, if I would just ask them questions like, what's important to you about this? <laughs> they'd be so stressed out. They'd be like, just yeah. tell me, can you just tell me what this job is supposed to be? Can you tell me who I'm supposed to talk to? You know? Uh, so there's, there's times you need to, to dance around. Same on the directive side. If I constantly was just telling people what to do, there'd be no growth, there'd be no learning, there'd be no stretching. So it's really important as leaders for us and as managers to kind of figure out what a situation calls for and get practice using not just each end of the spectrum, but all the spots in between too. Okay, and you mentioned uh, sponsoring and coaching on the empowering end of the spectrum. Yeah. And coaching is asking people open-ended questions? Yeah, bingo, yeah, exactly. Asking people open-ended questions, again, helping them to kind of connect their own dots and not telling them the answer. <laughs> so not mentoring, right? Not advising, but instead uh, reflecting back what you're hearing them say, giving them time and space to introspect and asking them those beautiful open questions to help like prompt that kind of introspection. And when's that most useful? Uh, you know, what, what is <laughs> a success mode, I guess? Yeah, it's most useful when you're trying to help someone develop a new skill uh, or just grow, just in general, grow as a human. As coaching is the most powerful one to use then. Okay. So basically all the time, by the way, just like as a caveat, like I'm, I'm talking like 50 to 80% of the time coaching is the mode that we all should be in. There's like a subset of cases in which, you know, mentoring is going to be helpful. Um, but otherwise coaching is, coaching is it. Do you have, uh, do you have any imagery that will help say, Hey, an example of who coaches well? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. So I would say if you see someone at work who's like, Hey, here's the outline of a project that I need, I need help with, uh, 
in, in my, my go-to example for this is a blend of sponsorship that like giving someone a stretch goal and also coaching them through it um, and coaching, which was my boss was like, hey, I don't ha- I've got too much on my plate. You're a director. I know you've never worked with corporate budgets before, but can you figure out the engineering budget for education, like training, travel, all this stuff? And I was like, okay, uh, where do I start? And this, he was like, uh, well, here's probably the people you're going to need to talk to. Here's the end outcome that I'm looking for, but like, it's totally up to you to figure out what that is. That, that's sponsorship. Like, that's giving me the outline. It's the delegations. The, here's a stretch project that I think you could be supportive with. Um, what I was missing was, hey, let's figure out where, like, let me ask you some questions, Laura. Um, what feels scariest about this for you? Where do you think you want to start? Who do you already know who's good at this that you can rely on? Like those kinds of questions that prompt the introspection, that would have been a beautiful coaching moment. If only, I mean, I had a great coach the whole time. who right. was like actually a, a trained coach. So she was really helpful, <laughs> but that's, it kind of brings up the point that one person can't be your everything. Your manager is not going to be good at all these things. I think it's really important to build out a network of support that, you know, I like to call a manager Voltron. <laughs> you, you do talk about that in the workshop. Go deeper into that. Yeah. So I think I learned this the hard way. I think we've all learned this the hard way. Like your managers get a subset of skills, but you know, we need more than just one person. Um, so I started to think about this as like a group of people, a, a diverse group of people that I lean on as I grow as a, as a, as a manager, as a leader, as a human. Um, and they're each going to have different skills. They're each going to have different defaults on that spectrum. They're each going to have different experiences and perspectives. Some of the people I lean on have like completely opposite leadership styles to me. Some have way more experience in me in a completely different field than I do. Some people are great at giving feedback. Some people are great at coaching. You know, it could be any of these set of skills. Actually, I have a bingo card. I don't know if we can link to stuff in the show notes at all, but like, great, beautiful. So we can link to the the bingo card to help you kind of brainstorm who's already in your network of support for these kinds of skills. And where, where are the gaps? Like, where should you be adding people to your Voltron to help you grow? One of the uh, issues that I, I struggle with uh, is asking for help. We all need a manager Voltron. How do you like, if you're like me, how do you, how do you get to that next step, which is asking for help? Right. And I feel like all the advice out there is like, go out and network. Like, what does that even mean? That's not clear. Especially now. Right. It's absolutely like we're, we're, everybody's also underwater. So even if you could find, let's say a Slack channel to go find and meet some people in, um, everybody's drowning. So the best way I've seen to add people to your Voltron um, is like someone in your extended network. It could be someone inside your company, but kind of outside of your normal field of work, like someone in a different department. Um, It could be outside, like, you know, friend of a friend, uh, manager of a manager (laughs) style. Uh, But once you kind of have an inkling that there's someone in your extended network that you already have a connection to, um, it can be like the teeniest little connection in the world. I recommend coming up with, uh, like figuring out all of all the problems that you have, what's one that this person could help with? Either provide their experience on uh, or maybe be a good coach to you for, give you feedback, something specific, choose a specific skill that you would like them to use and then reach out to them and ask them for that specific help. So the, the way that this first happened to me, and I, I like realized it for the first time, was the former CTO of Meetup, Yvette Pasqua. She, I had like met her at something randomly. Um, you know, we connected on LinkedIn or something. And she, she reached out and said, hey, I know that you run an infrastructure team at Etsy. I'm, a, I'm currently thinking of reorganizing my infrastructure team. Do you have any opinions on like how, how to do or how not to do reorgs? And 
sure it was a shot in the dark, but like, do I have opinions on reorgs of infrastructure days? <laughs> so like, I was like immediately wrote back and was like, yeah, let's, in this case, it was in the before times. And I was like, let's get coffee. Um, and it was, it was so, it was such a beautiful example of like, when you ask someone to give their opinion on something that they might really care about deeply, it's so easy to form that connection and genuinely get their help. Uh, and she, she didn't make up that problem. That was actually a thing that she was thinking about. And so it was, it turned into like a lovely two or three hour meeting in which we talked about so many things. And that was her way of adding me to her Voltron crew. And it goes both ways. Like now I lean on her for all sorts of things. And I have, you know, the honor of supporting her through a bunch of stuff too. And it's, it, I've seen this happen time and time again. If you just reach out to one person that you have like a distant connection to, ask them for specific help on a topic that they may be jazzed to share their knowledge and expertise on, it can lead to beautiful things. One of the things that I don't want to skip it because it's, uh, it's very interesting, but we almost skipped it, is sponsorship. So you oh, talked yeah, about right. coaching. Now let's talk about sponsorship. What does that mean and, and what does that entail? So sponsorship, if you think about the times in your life when you as a person have grown, like if you think about the times like when you had a manager who really skyrocketed your growth and you think about what skill sets they used or what they did to help you with that growth, nine times out of 10, it was not giving you advice. Uh, it was maybe giving you feedback, but most likely it was giving you the stretch opportunity. Like for some reason, this person trusted in me. Uh, they gave me this project. I didn't know how to do it. And that helped me grow so much. That's sponsorship. And again, it's so much more powerful than any of the other skills when it comes to actual career trajectory. There's a bunch of studies on this. Uh, and whenever I talk about sponsorship, I also like to bring up that members of minoritized groups are often over-mentored, but under-sponsored, hmm. which means that uh, white people, in my case, actually white women, um, are often get lots of unsolicited advice, <laughs> but very rarely uh, opportunities to look at sponsorship, people going out of their way to, to provide um, those stretch goals and, and, and support through meeting those stretch goals. So this is true for people of color. This is true for people with disabilities, trans folks, non-binary people. There's just so many folks out there who really deserve sponsorship, but because of something called in-group bias, the way that we network as humans often means that we are referring to people and referring people for uh, the people who we, who we think about first. They are really similar to us in a variety of ways. And until I started learning about this, frankly, most of the people who I sponsored were white cisgendered women like me. And so it just takes a lot of hard work to combat these very natural instincts of how we network and support each other to kind of break out of that shell and, and sponsor people with uh, different backgrounds, different experiences, uh, went to different colleges, you know, all, the, all that stuff, all the normal in-group stuff, try to break out of that. Yeah. And I don't have to tell you that, you know, diverse teams will build better software all the time. 100%. And yeah. we just have to sponsor and give people those chances that they might not otherwise gotten. I think that. And then, yeah. And provide them support to do so. You know, too often we see people be like, here, person, here's a huge stretch opportunity. Good luck. I believe in you. And then provide no, no extra support. They're going to fail, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that it's, it's definitely, it, needs, it takes intention and then hard work to support those people in succeeding. Yeah. When you were bringing up sponsorship, I remember the times where I've grown the fastest in my career have been when somebody sponsored me, but didn't let me go out there on my own. Like mm -hmm. they were, they weren't, you know, they were behind the curtain. And they were right. helping me to pick up any pieces that I might have dropped, but they weren't visible to other people. 
And it, yeah. so, so to other people, it was me. And when I yeah. look back, it was them. <laughs> it, you know, it was How their powerful is that? Yeah. And like that, it's that, that behind the curtain part is the critical part. Like we can't be sponsoring for allyship cookies, right? That's like, that doesn't, that's not sponsorship. We need to be behind the curtain. We need to be allowing this person to be, to really succeed in the, in the spotlight. And I love what you just said. And it actually makes me think of the other skill that you mentioned about the army training, which is the delegation skill. And a good delegator is one that doesn't micromanage, doesn't, doesn't tell you what to do, uh, but gives you the, like illustrates the end goal. Like here's the problem that we're here to, to solve. And then tells you how they can lean on you for support. So like, or how you can lean on them for support rather. So like, you know, I expect that you'll want to get on the executive team agenda. Reach out to me when you're ready for that and I'll help you get on there. Or I'm super happy to provide you feedback on any of your drafts before this goes live. Like just be really clear about the ways in which you want to support them so that they're not like worried about reaching out to you when it's time for some help. Yeah. And the the funny thing is, is of course the armies are focused on on fighting and winning wars, but there are there are takeaways. One of them just like what you just said, it is something called the commander's intent. So whenever there is a, hey, we need to take this hill, for example, uh, they start out the battle plan with the commander's intent is by the end of this, whatever the outcome is. And ah, that starts yeah. it, that ends it. And if at any point there is no communication or you know the fog of war happens, then everybody, every unit down to the individual platoons they know what was the commander's intent. What is the ultimate, mm. you know, outcome that we are looking for, and so that allows for uh, platoons and for companies that are outside of communication or when things break down, which they invariably do. That allows them to take initiative on their own and get to you know the right outcome that they were looking for in the beginning. Yeah, it's almost like at the end of this, what what do we cross check? What do we what do we like triple check to make sure that we met the got it the intent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't actually think I would be talking about the army today at all uh, when we started this. Uh, so you, right now, with um, as as we as we record this, it's July fourteenth. California, Florida, and Texas are on the rise. Other states are either on the rise slightly or a lot or holding steady at best. Um, this is a tough time for even even if you have nothing else going on. This is a tough time. Absolutely. What is your advice for managers of teams at this time? It's just, it's just the worst. It's just, it's really illustrating. It's illustrating what a lack of leadership looks like, mm -hmm. which means that it's in many ways falling to leaders with less power and less privilege to try to pick up the slack. So in the internal to a company sense, this means that lots of managers need to figure out how to support their teams uh, and their individual teammates, all of whom are dealing with different circumstances. Um, one, of the, one of the pitfalls that I see happening a lot right now is that managers and team leads are trying to create support in ways that they personally would benefit from them. They're projecting their mm -hmm. own needs onto the rest of the team. Like at the beginning of, of times, I saw a lot of managers be like, let's create 6 p.m. happy hours every day so we can all still feel connected. And like, maybe that helped one person. Most of us would have been like, I got these other, I need to go take care of these other things. Uh, I cannot be on Zoom any longer. You know, like, three kids. They're right, young. exactly, they exactly. They, so I, I see a lot of managers falling into this very normal, natural trap of like, let me do all that I can to help people and just take shots in the dark 
about what's going to be most helpful rather than taking a step back and listening, asking. Uh, I don't recommend the what do you need right now question at first. I recommend that later. I definitely recommend a few things for managers to start with. First, tell them what you're optimizing for right now. Like I am optimizing for making sure psychological safety is happening on the team, or I'm, I'm optimizing for making sure everybody uh, has the energy that they need to get through this project, or I'm optimizing for making sure everybody has the information and clarity that they need. Whatever the thing is, be really clear constantly about what's the number one goal for you as a manager, the thing that you're optimizing for right now. That's a good example of like one-way communication, which I'm gonna emphasize a lot. Like. Anytime you require there to be a two-way communication, it requires synchronous communication, or even if it's async, you require a response to something, it makes it really hard for people <laughs> to like find the time and the energy to do so. So over-index on doing lots of one-way communication. In one-on-ones though, be really clear about how you're planning to support people or how you're trying to support people. Say, okay, here's a few things that I've realized we could use in the team. What are your thoughts on that? And that's when you can say, what else would be helpful to you right now? Hmm. Like it's only after we've gotten through this initial, like here's what, I, here's what I'm, I'm optimizing for and uh, here's the things that I'm trying in case they're helpful. What else do you need? Kind of opens the door for people to be specific about what they might need. And then it's kind of circles back to something I mentioned at the top, which is the six core needs that humans have at work. Those things that our amygdalas are trying to, you know, keep us safe with. Um, they're all threatened right now. I mean, when we think about it, and, and they include things like how we belong to a group. Anytime we feel othered or alienated or left behind, our amygdala is going to feel threatened. And is that the B in biceps? That's the B. Yes. Yeah. Biceps is the acronym. Thank you. Coined by Paloma Medina. So belonging is the first one. Uh, improvement and progress is the I. So we, we want to feel like we're making a sense of progress and forward motion in our lives. And anytime we feel stagnant or like we're, we're taking steps back, that coordinate is going to feel threatened. It's really obvious that's happening right now at the numbers that we're looking at. The C stands for choice. So how much autonomy do we have right now? There's so, we're being forced inside or being, uh, I mean, as much as anybody else, I don't like wearing a mask. It's really important to do so. But for many people I'm seeing their need for choices is, is kind of showing up in that, in that area. Uh, equality and fairness is the E. So we want to, as humans, we want to believe that everybody's being treated fairly and as they should be. And obviously a number of populations are being over impacted by this horrible pandemic. There's a bunch of communities that need extra support right now. It's just unfair. Also at the same time, the Black Lives Matter movement is really, again, shining yet another light on the lack of equality and fairness in our, in our communities. It's just, it's obviously a core need that we we're taking to the streets over. Um, predictability is the P. We want to have some sense of the future, what's going to happen, some certainty. Uh, and then last but not least is significance, which is effectively status. Like where am I in this informal or formal hierarchy? So when I think about the people that I support as a manager, every single person is going to have a different combination of these core needs at play. And the trap that we need to not fall into is projecting our own core needs onto everybody else. Like my core need right now is predictability. I need it. I have a little, a little post-it note you can't see it, but George can. On my laptop, this is predictability. Just to remind myself, hey, when you wake up in the morning, create as much predictability as you can for yourself. This is the core need that your amygdala, your limbic system needs the most right now. Everybody's is going to be different. I can't project my need for predictability onto everybody around me. I need to start to listen and ask questions to figure out which of these their core needs is being threatened. On the blog, we can link to it. On the blog, I've got a bunch of open-ended questions that you can use with your teammates to kind of check in on how their core needs are doing to make sure that you're you're correctly supporting them in the ways that they need. It's funny, you were t we've talked about success and failure modes, and it feels like a failure mode of our current uh, political system is, you know, of, of federalism is the fact that you have a large pandemic that affects mm -hmm. the entire nation, and you can't, like, you have to have that 
leadership, that strong leadership at the top, which our system of federalism, uh, and at least practiced by the current um, administration, administration, uh, they're you know they're trying to practice that. I think, uh, but it it is a failure mode right now. Um, yeah. It's it's not going to help us succeed, and and which is unfortunately is devastating. Like this has real life mm-hmm. consequences. And that's what we should remember whenever we're trying to vote for new leaders. <laughs> yeah. Now, who do you recommend uh, as far as, you know, who do you lean on for, uh, I don't want to say diversity and inclusion because it just puts a, uh, that puts like a, a label on something that's so much more important, you know, making mm-hmm. sure the biceps model works for everyone in our organization. Who do you lean on to understand how that can help with people of color, you know, with minorities, um, you know, who do you yeah. lean on? Who is your, uh, your go-to for more information on that? Totally. So there's a bunch of, I mean, just every day there's a bunch of new resources out in the world that are being developed. There's this amazing spreadsheet that's going around that I can provide a link for in the show notes um, for Black-owned DEI consultants that are currently taking on new work, uh, which is just incredible. What an incredible, like, uh, group of people that we can continue to invest in the support as they do this amazing work. Um, for me personally, uh, I've been leaning a lot on existing resources from Project Include when it comes to like tech workplaces and how we can continue to make our workplaces more inclusive. They've got a bunch of good research and a bunch of um, really important frameworks that we can kind of lean on for all aspects of our business. And then the creator of the of the BICEPS Corneed's acronym, Paloma Medina, she also has a bunch of resources on her website that have a lot to do with equity and inclusion work that I find myself often citing for lots of different parts um, of whether it's the hiring process or the retention process, promotion processes, uh, just to really try to like, triple check and look at the research again, not just try to make it up like as we engineers are want to do, but actually look at the studies and say, okay, what works and what doesn't? Like there's a bunch of studies that show that different styles of unconscious bias training make things worse, not better. So, so actually taking a look at like what works, what's, what's real, what works and, and uh, applying those things. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, we only have uh, a little while left, um, but you know, for a team that doesn't have psychological safety or maybe has less psychological safety than, you know, they need to be um, productive uh, what, you know, what are the first steps, you know, for them is how do you figure out one, you don't have the psychological safety and two, how do you get yourself out of it? It's, this stuff is so hard and there, there's so, there's so much research on it. Amy Edmondson, if people are looking, interested in doing a lot more reading on this, Amy Edmondson has written so much about this. I'm far from an expert in it. Um, When I start to think about this, uh, this topic and trying to just figure out from the start, do we have it on our team? I start to pay attention to not just things like body language, but also how many questions are being asked in team meetings. Are people pushing back? When people push back, how does everybody else react? You know, how, it's not just how, how safe is it to be wrong, but how safe is it to ask questions and to provide other solutions or just to say that something feels bad or wrong? If none of those things are happening, you don't have psychological safety on your team. Uh, a failure mode would be to think, everything's fine because no one's saying anything. The opposite (laughs) is true. Um, So when I think about this stuff, I think a lot about using coaching skills and active listening skills to uh, provide a sense of like, Hey, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I want to, I want to make things better here. I want to support you as you grow as a person Um, and try to understand people as individuals. And then the most important thing for me as a manager is following through with anything I commit to. For me that like, you can't ask for trust. 
you got to like demonstrate that you deserve trust has a lot to do with saying is doing the things that you say you're going to do. And for me, that's a huge core piece of creating psychological safety on a team. Nice. Now that, you know, it's not always good news. Um, as a manager and leader, you know, how can I either, you know, how can I deliver not say oh, great news uh, <laughs> to either my boss or my team? And, you know, what does that look like? What do you recommend? Yeah. So there's so many different ways to go about this. For me, I, I, still, I just see so many failure modes here about um, trying to dance around a problem. Uh, or trying to over-explain. There's a lot of a lot of failure modes that I see when it comes to people managers being nervous to deliver bad news. As much as humanly possible, bottom line the news that you're that you're trying to deliver. Meaning, in one sentence, what's the point? Then you can also add more context, especially if you give people time to ask questions. But I would say get practiced in bottom lining and being really really clear. Uh, I don't mean being a dictator. I mean just stating a fact or stating what the thing is that's happening. If you've got bad news to deliver to your team and it's coming down from above you, it's really important to not just bottom line what that news is, but also provide some context that's yours. So like, okay, listen, here's the deal. Layoffs are coming. My perspective on this is blah, 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 blah. That might be, uh, here's what I think is going to happen or what's not going to happen, which is risky to say. That might be, here's what I'm going to be doing to support you each as we move forward. That might be, hey, here's what I'm going to follow up on next to get some more clarity and information on this. Whatever, whatever the thing might be, give it, give your perspective, your, your, your I'm not going to say spin because that's that means like making it false. But how are you feeling about this, or or what are you seeing about this? Try not to make it all about your feelings because that's going to feel very weird. But the final thing to close with is when can people hear from you next on this, and in what medium? Mostly when people hear bad news, all they're doing every single day following that is waiting for the other shoe to drop. So letting people know, hey, next Thursday, I'll have another update for you on this via Slack or in our team meeting or whatever. Or, hey, the next thing we'll do is talk in one-on-ones about this. That's can be, that can be so clarifying and give people the certainty and predictability they need about, you know, in a very otherwise ambiguous, awful situation, one little sliver of predictability going forward. Hmm. You, one of the things that we, we happens in tech and it, it feels like it happens in tech far more than other industries, although I have no data to back that up is <laughs> turnover yeah. is there's a lot of turnover in tech from your perspective and from the teams you've worked with, you know, do you see that as a management thing or do you see that's purely because of, you know, compensation and benefits? It's easier to you know get better if you jump. What does that mix look like from your perspective? You know, it's really interesting. The retention rate stuff is just mired in a lot of complexity. Um, like I see some HR folks or executives bragging about how low turnover they have. And it's actually, I learned there's a healthy amount of turnover. If you've got too little turnover, it's actually unhealthy. Oh. <laughs> so there's like, there's like a, there's like a threshold um, that's normal. I couldn't give you numbers on it, but like this, you got to ask yourself, am I in the correct threshold? There should be some amount of healthy change um, internally. A lot of the folks that I coach, if they're leaving jobs, it's because they're perceiving things to be unfair. Uh, more often than not, the people who I coach are members of minoritized groups. And so they might be perceiving, um, a wage gap or a promotion rate issue uh, when you look at minoritized groups compared to, um, you know, non-minoritized groups. So it's been really interesting to support these folks, which is obviously like a niche of the population as they choose to change jobs because there's also a lot of risk involved. When you, when you change 
organizations, that means you are introducing a bunch more risk about how you're about to be treated and how fairly or not you're about to be uh, approached. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's just layered in complexity. So I would say, again, if you've got too little, too little uh, turnover, take a little look at that because probably it's time for some people to go. <laughs> uh, and you've got too much turnover. If it feels like it's too much, ask yourself, how, how do I know? What, what can I look at to see if this is a healthy amount? Because the act of people leaving is, can be really healthy. So check, triple check with yourself who's leaving. Is it kind of normalized across the board? There's uh, an article that I wrote about wage uh, equity and promotion equity that includes some tips on how to measure across different demographic groups what your retention rates are and what your promotion rates are to triple check that nothing is, is wrong yeah. across the board. The only, one of the things that I'll say to new managers is the first thing you should do as a manager from a numbers perspective, it's probably, it's not the first thing you should do when you, to meet your team, but at least from a numbers perspective, <laughs> you should see, you should know what your people make and you should make yeah. sure that you equalize it, you know, Precisely. bring people up. If they're not making what they should be making, try to bring them up immediately because that will, that will, that's a way of building trust. When you come in, you say, Hey, look, this is what I see. I'm putting in for that. That's a, a fast way of building trust, of showing them that you care and of making sure that you do have justice uh, in, and equity in pay on your team, which we all want. We're in tech. We're in one of the richest industries in the world. If we can't pay people what they're worth here, nobody can. And so we it's should amazing. be doing it. Yeah. It's amazing to me that the traps that people, the mental traps that people fall into around this, like they, they think there must be a reason why this person is being paid less. We default to like, what are the specific unique circumstances under which this person is being paid less rather than saying what you just said, which is let me pay people equally first and then we can figure out the rest later, which I think is going to save you a lot of heartache yeah. going forward. Uh, maybe we, maybe it's just a, you know, a, a mental thing where we're like, well, clearly they didn't do something right. And right. Well, I don't have enough information, so I shouldn't change things rather than, wait a minute, these are my people. I'm responsible for them. Yeah. I need to endear trust. I need to be their leader and starting from there, which you might fail. Like there might be a totally. good reason why they're not being paid enough, but that happens a lot less than, you know, all these assumptions that you talk about and all these prejudices yeah. and these biases that, yeah. that stop someone from getting the money that they actually need and deserve. Like Precisely. And if there's performance issues, you deal with that with performance management. You deal with that with feedback. You don't deal with that with compensation uh, and, and inequity and compensation. And so I, I maintain paying people the same for the same job is one of the most obvious things to me that still is causing a lot of issues in our industry. Yeah. Laura, so uh, people, uh, how can they find you on the internet? How can companies get in touch with you uh, to do coaching? And what do you want to leave us with? <laughs> Yeah, uh, Lara underscore Hogan on Twitter, and we are at wherewithall.com for all your coaching and training needs. Buy the book and schedule a coaching call with Laura. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, it's, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on the Build Better Software podcast. Thanks.